this is part of the kind of riddle of 1848. It's a very difficult thing to narrate. And it's a very difficult thing to keep in your head because there's a lot of stuff going on in a lot of different places at the same time. On the 29th of January, 1848, at the Assemblée Nationale in Paris, the great intellectual and now a member of parliament, Alexis de Tocqueville, rises. Gentlemen, I believe that we are, at this moment, sleeping on a volcano. I am profoundly convinced of it. Do you not feel, what shall I say, as it were, a gale of revolution in the air? Within weeks, Tocqueville's prediction came to pass, and more. In 1848, nearly all of Europe revolted. The French ousted their king, their last in their long history. The Austrians got the ageing giant in arch-conservative of European politics, Chancellor Metternich, to retire. Hungary tried to become an independent nation. German and Italian idealists saw this as the opportunity to unite their nation. All of Europe was going through the so-called spring of a people, fighting for constitutional rights, the establishment of a parliament, national sovereignty, and many other cornerstones of modern democracy. But the spring of a people was soon followed by a cold winter of repression. The newly established French Republic shot the hungry Parisian workers, the Austrian and Prussian monarchies wrestled back the momentum from the streets of Vienna and Berlin. The dreams of German and Italian unity were crushed by internal strife and more importantly the Austro-Prussian armies. The Austrians soon invited the Russians to flatten the Hungarian uprising. Despite the apparent failure of 1848, its legacy is seemingly everywhere. 1848 was a learning experience for men like Karl Marx, one of the founding fathers of communism, and Giuseppe Mazzini, one of the founding fathers of Italian unification. And only decades after the failure of 1848, Italy and German became unified nation-states. The democratic ideals of 1848 also became entrenched in the European political atmosphere and yet, it seems that 1848 has largely been forgotten in national and European history. To discuss about this momentous year, to discuss about 1848's European legacy, we are honoured to have with us two esteemed historians of European history. Professor Chris Clark of St. Catherine's College, Cambridge, and Jonathan Sperber, from the University of Missouri. As per every week, thanks a lot to all of our wonderful patrons who continue to back us. Their support allow us to pay for our physical and digital equipments and plan for the long term. So, if you find yourself coming back every week to Uncommon Decency, maybe it is time to make your contribution on Patreon. You can even join our weekly sessions where we prepare for our upcoming episodes. If you can't spare the $5 or so a month, you can always write a review on Apple Podcasts, subscribe on Spotify, and share the show with your friends. 
All of this really helps boost the show's visibility and attract new and exciting speakers. Now, on to the show. From Cambridge, we have Professor Chris Clark. Chris is the Regis Professor of History at the University of Cambridge. You might know him from his many books on European history, including his 2000 biography of William II, on the history of Prussia, Iron Kingdom, the rise and downfall of Prussia, 1600 to 1947, as well as the sleepwalkers, how Europe went to war in 1914. On the other side of the line, we have from Missouri, Emeritus Curator Distinguished Professor, Jonathan Sperber, who has also written extensively on European history, including A Revolutionary Europe, 1780 to 1850, and Europe, 1850-1914, Progress, Participation and Apprehension. He will soon release this fall his new book, entitled The Age of Interconnection, A Global History of the Second Half of the 20th Century. But in the meantime, his most relevant book for this conversation is his comprehensive book on the issue of the day, entitled The European Revolutions, 1848 to 1851. Professor Clark and Professor Sperber, thank you so much for coming on Common Decency. We're delighted to be here. <laughs> well, I am. <laughs> Before we get started, I think let's ground a conversation on the main events of 1848. We don't want to be too tedious about it and, and explain all the details, but essentially, Professor Sperber, can you kind of walk us through briefly the main chronology of 1848 and maybe some of the kind of causes behind it? Yes. Um, so I think we'll start with the two major causes. Um, one is the economic crisis that emerged uh, starting in 1845 with, with series, first the um, uh, potato blight, which destroyed a lot of the potato mm. crop in Europe, a series of bad harvests producing high food prices, uh, which meant that people spending all their money on food had uh, nothing to spend on industrial products or the goods of services the goods and services produced by craftsmen, uh, resulting in a fairly severe recession um, between 1845 and 1847. So it's a good deal of economic uncertainty. Um, the other thing that was happening was what we might call an offensive of the party of movement. Um, contemporaries talked about the party of movement and the party of order, the party of movement, those who wanted to change things in moderate or drastic fashion who protested against undemocratic franchise, authoritarian government, um, a lot of other uh, political ills in Europe at the time. Uh, the two were combined briefly in the celebrated Swiss Civil War of 1847, uh, when um, the conservative and Catholic cantons of Switzerland attempted to secede from the Swiss Confederation. They were defeated by the predominantly Protestant and more left-wing cantons. Um, the Swiss Civil War is of interest largely uh, because of the inability of the great powers of Europe to suppress it as they had suppressed revolutions in 1820 and 1830, strongly suggesting that there would be an outbreak of uh, revolution forthcoming. And indeed that happened. Um, in the first four months of 1848, you see a wave of revolutionary events uh, moving from um, Sicily in the southern part of the European continent, through the proclamation of the Republic in Paris in February, 
1848 to uprisings in um, the two big central European capitals of the two big central European states, Berlin and Vienna, in March, at the same time in um, Milan and Venice, northern Italy, um, and concluding um, in April um, with uprisings in the um, Moldavian, uh, the Danubian principalities of Moldavia mm. and Wallachia, uh, today's Romania. Uh, these uprisings and barricade fightings in capital cities went on with a wave of more peaceful changes, uh, governments conceding to mass demonstrations uh, without bloodshed, as they did among other, among other capitals in Munich and Copenhagen. Um, and um, there followed a period of immensely intense political activity, a flourishing of the free press, the founding of political associations, um, unprecedented political life, elections, mm. uh, the constituent national assemblies. So we have these elections, uh, an unprecedentedly broad franchise ranging from all adult men in France to various forms of large proportions of adult men in, say, Hungary. And um, these are then followed with a series of actually very violent confrontations on social and economic and national political issues, uh, small-scale civil wars, um, generally resulting between June and November of 1848 in a defeat of a lot of the revolutionary forces, followed by a regrouping and another round of uprisings and insurrections, um, small-scale civil wars in the spring of 1849, and the very last grasp of the revolution, the uprising in 1841 against the coup d'etat of Louis-Napoleon mm -hmm. Bonaparte in France. Uh, so that, that, that in very, very brief describes the events uh, of the mid-19th mid century revolution. Oh, Chris, anything to add to this overview of 1848? Well, I'm just, I'm just amazed at the virtuosity of Jonathan Sperber. And it's a little bit like the Proust summarizing competition, where you've got to summarize the works of Marcel Proust in one minute. But it, it is an impossible task to summarize these revolutions. I mean, one way I think of it is quite, quite helps if you want a sort of takeaway summary it helps to think of it in terms of seasons. So there are sort of spring days where, as, as Jonathan said, everybody's kind of together. There's this euphoria of unanimity. Then there's summer when it all starts to come apart and people realize, hey, we're not, we're not actually after the same things here. Yeah. We disagree on a lot. And, of, and the, the counter-revolutions are already beginning in Naples, for example, in May. And then comes the autumn when the story kind of bifurcates. It divides into two. On the one hand, there's a, a round of really serious counter-revolutions, some of which are very violent. And on the other hand, and there's a second wave of, of revolutions, which then have to be suppressed in the following summer of 1849. Uh, and in some places, the troubles go on into 1850, 51, as, um, as, as Jonathan was saying. So it, it is really, um, this is part of the kind of yeah. riddle of 1848. It's a very difficult thing to narrate. And it's a very difficult thing to keep in your head because there's a lot of stuff going on in a lot of different places at the same time. Yeah, and w one of the first questions we can begin to ask about 1848, and we'll, we'll ask um, uh, Professor Sperber this question first and then turn to Professor Clark, is its relationship to political modernity. I mean, we, um, we oftentimes date modern era back to the French Revolution, to, to the ideals of 1789, but shouldn't we instead be looking at 1848 as the date when, as the date that really ushered political modernity? Because that's when you start uh, to have in a lot of these countries talks of um, 
uh, constitutions and national assemblies and the sovereignty of the people. So, in in I mean, in a nutshell, is, isn't 1848 the aftershock of, of 1789, Professor Sperber? Yes, and in fact, I would I would go a little further and say what we see in 1848 is the implementation of a lot of these principles of 1789 on a European-wide yeah. scale. Uh, these ideas, you know, whether whether you take simple things like the symbol, the tricolor flag. Um, a French specialty in the 1790s, and by 1848, it seems like every national movement in Europe's got its own three mm. colors. Um, mm. But then, then we have um, the idea of um, constitutional government, of popular sovereignty. Um, these are all implemented on a European-wide scale. Um, so, it, it, yes, <coughs> actually, I think that's putting it very well, as you've described it. Mm. If I could come in there, um, yes, it, it is a sort of aftershock and an echo in many ways. And of course, Marx struggles with this. And it makes the point famously in, in an essay called The 18th Premier of Louis Napoleon that 1848 is the kind of pathetic reiteration of something original and magnificent. It's the farcical repetition of an originally tragic, um, you know, original, tragic script. And that the people of 1848 are pathetic imitations of the ones of the original heroes of, of 1789 to, I suppose, 1790. But I think, I must say, I think that there, one can get sort of trapped in that Marxian view because I think, and, and this is a point that Jonathan's made in, in his books on this subject, um, there's a lot that's happened in between those two revolutions, a lot of accumulated stresses, and they have to do with a lot of other features. Uh, so, for example, the peace settlement of 1815 creates a lot of new asymmetries and pressures. The fact that um, it ratifies the disappearance of mm. Poland, there is no mm. Polish nation state, and that means the Poles are going to be sort of rising up at every opportunity, including in 1848. Um, or the, the, the place of women's advocacy, which is something that really starts mm. off in the 1830s in a big way in Paris, and there's a sort of women's network across Europe, which then again takes off in 1848. They don't achieve very much in terms of legal rights and so on, but it's a process of you know increasingly concentrated and focused advocacy, which has happened between the, the two great revolutionary epochs. Mm. So they are an after after shock. there's no question, mm. and people in 1848 have the events of the first French Revolution playing at the backs of their heads like a, like an old movie. Mm. They all know this script. I mean, they, they have different versions of it, of course. Mm. And they're all watching contemporary events and checking for discrepancies and matches. You know, this is like what happened in 1792. Mm. Does that mean 1793 is around the corner? And so on. So there is that sense of being, um, you know, being you know, forced to keep gazing at the past, being trapped by the past. And that was the point that Marx made about this. Mm. On the other hand, as Alexis de Tocqueville remarked, he said, you know, yes, it, the events did appear imitative, but that imitativeness of 1848 actually concealed the profound novelty mm. of the events because this revolution was taking place in a completely different kind of society, a much more complex civil society with uh, you know endlessly more ramified communicative structures and more sophisticated political cultures mm. than 1789. Um, as a bit of an aside, I was reading something um, a few weeks ago which said there was a profoundly, maybe not misogynist, but kind of a reaction to the influence of women in the court of the late Ancien Regime within the French Revolution. And there's a desire for women to go back in the house as being, you know, uh, child bear childbearers rather than trying to join the intrigues of the courts. Um, so I think that might give you an interesting um, difference here. But to go back to our conversation, 
1848 a European revolution? I think that's the heart of our conversation today. Because, first of all, how connected were the events in Berlin from the events in Vienna, from the events in Paris or Milan or whatever? And were the people aware of what was going on in the cities? Was this kind of a, a vague sentiment? Is it comparable to what we saw in the Arab world in 2011? Did the various political leaders, you know, people like Mazzini, people like uh, Karl Marx, from the lesser extent back then, uh, Lajos Kossuth in, in Hungary, did these people have a European background and mindset? Um, or are we trying to retrospectively tie something which is kind of loosely connected? Professor Sperber. All right, I'll, I'll give, how about, I'll give three different answers mm. to the question. Uh, first, of, of all the canonical revolutions of modern Europe, 1789-1848-1917-1989-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1848-1
um, dimension has been largely lost. Although for con- the contemporaries of 1848, they did experience it as a as a European revolution. And if you look at the press, for example, the reporting going on before the outbreak of the February Revolution in Paris, you find the French press is full of reports of what's been going on in Switzerland, very detailed reports of this civil war Jonathan referred to, referred to earlier between liberal and, and conservative cantons. Then they pick up the news of what's happening in Sicily. Then they pick up the news of Naples. And Tocqueville gives a famous speech in the Chamber of Deputies where he says, you know, you think, you think that you members of the government think you can sort of sit back in your chairs and wait uh, for this to peter out. But this is a storm. It's on the horizon right now, but it's coming our way. And unless you understand that, you've understood nothing. So he predicts, he sees very clearly that Europe is a joined up system and that this is not, um, you know, you can't simply sit back in Paris and uh, observe the events at Sicily as if it's an operetta. Um. Yeah. I think I think there's another point to be made here too, and that is that, you know, Europeans thought of Europe as a joined up system. And this is, a, again, just to touch on something else that Jonathan said. And above all, they did that because of the peace settlement of 1815, which had created what conservatives saw as a European order. And that order didn't just wasn't just a peace treaty among the all the belligerents that had been involved in the wars against or the, the Napoleonic Wars. It was it also reached deep into the constitutional and political settlements in each individual state. So Europe was an order bound together by treaties and law, which um, is another form of connectivity. And the other the other form of connectivity, which is often not uh, mentioned because it doesn't it's not part of that sort of liberal radical nexus that that you know 21st century historians are mainly interested in um you know is the is the interconnectivity of of dynastic government that a lot of a lot of these uh, kings were related to, to to dynasts in other states and that again was a form of you know international solidarity or connectivity at least and even if they weren't connected they were communicating with each other through diplomats and envoys and special couriers and so on so it's an intensely connected mm. continent and you know you can't have a, a, an upheaval in one part of it which doesn't it's very hard anyway in the in the world of 1848 before the emergence of the nation states to imagine an upheaval like that not not spreading even in 1830 there'd been a cascade of revolutions across many states well you talk about the emergence of a nation state but is is in a paradox here because 1848 is one of the major stepping stones across Europe for the emergence of a nation state. And the paradox is that this European revolution is also going to give birth to national sentiment and also nationalism. Um, How do we square this paradox? Because there's also another paradox on top of this, which is we instinctively imagine revolutionaries as being internationalists, as being kind of connected to a wide international community. But Mm -hmm. on the flip side, we could also make the slightly provocative, I think somewhat true case that the real internationalists, the real Europeans, would also have the reactionaries on the other side who were much more efficient in their coordination and in crushing the hopes of the revolutionaries and dreamers of, you know, the, of spring of 1848. Um, so how are we squaring this paradox of the European nature of a revolution which brought forth nationalism, which also faced a movement which seemed to be as connected as European as they were? Professor Sperber. All right. Um, I think we need to look a little more carefully at nationalism. Mm. In its early phases, um, there was a very strong belief among not all, but a large proportion of nationalists in Europe that a Europe organized along national lines would be one of harmonious cooperation of different nationalities. Mm. 
They thought mm. wars were caused by the lusts of monarchs, mm. their arbitrary rule, the replacement yes. of, of monarchical rule with um, uh, rule, uh, arbitrary monarchical, absolutist monarchical rule uh, with a uh, Europe of popular sovereignty. Different nations would marvelously get along with one another. And some of the great early manifestations of European nationalism, the Hambacher Nationalfest of 1832, in uh, southwestern Germany, in which the speakers, 30,000 people gathered, a gigantic number for the time. And on the speakers' platform, you have German nationalists, French nationalists, Polish nationalists, and they're all talking about how they're going to work together. Um, 1848, mm. uh, the events of 1848 are a big shock to this idea. Um, it turns out um, that, in fact, national, different nationalist movements do not get along so harmoniously. Uh, it, it starts off that way, and in fact, in one of the symbol after after the after the victories of the barricade fighting in Berlin in March 1848, uh, arrested Polish national revolutionaries are uh, released from jail, and they parade around the city, and everybody cheers them. And everything seems to be really great here. Um, Germans and Poles are certainly quickly fighting each other in Prussia's eastern provinces, and what you see happening is that different, this is especially true in Central and Eastern Europe, different nationalist groups, different nationalist groups don't just claim the same territory, they claim the same people um, as part of their nation. Um, uh, Czech and German nationalists claim people living in the province of Bohemia as belonging to their nationality. Uh, Ukrainians and Poles in the, province, in the Habsburg province of Galicia both claim that everybody belongs to their nationality. Um, um, Magyars and Slovaks or Magyars and Croats, you see a similar thing. And, and, and so this is, this is like 1848 is the end of the dream of early nationalism, of this harmonious cooperation um, among the nations um, and replace it with the hostilities of, of national movements, which grow more and more intense um, throughout the 19th century, culminating, of course, in 1914. Um, now, to your second yeah. point about um, international counter-revolutionary cooperation. Uh, there's no question that starting from the Congress of Vienna, the mon absolutist monarchs of Europe are trying to be in league with each other to suppress revolutionary movements. And we, we see this finally happening in 1849 when the Tsar, who's been threatening to intervene throughout the revolutions, finally does march his soldiers into Hungary to suppress the anti-Habsburg revolution there in a, a newly independent Hungarian Republic. Um, but it's also true that this solidarity um, is already being cross-cut by elements of um, political rivalry among monarchs, by the struggle between the Prussians and the Austrians for domination in Central mm. Europe, um, by a lot of that yeah. sort of thing. Um, and the, Louis Napoleon, who's elected president of the French Republic, will soon proclaim himself Emperor Napoleon III, has his own particular take on this. Uh, and his desire to conquer territories. So that international solidarity is fading. However, this is my final point. There is one form of international solidarity, which I'd largely put on the counter-revolutionary side, not exclusively, but largely on the counter-revolutionary side in 1848, which is actually important um, for post-1945 ideas about European unity, and that's the Roman Catholic Church. Mm. Um, it is Christian... Catholic Church very because, starts out at best ambivalent about the revolution, becomes increasingly hostile to it, especially after Italian revolutionaries 
uh, seize power in Rome and force the Pope to flee. Um, and of course, it's Christian democratic politicians who play a leading role in creating um, uh, United Europe after 1945, first the EEC and then later the EU. Um, so and, and, and that particular version of counter-revolution um, is, I think, where if we, we want to look in 1848 for ideas about um, internationalist and pan-European pan -European ideals where we can see that. Uh, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I, I particularly agree with the last point. I mean, I think Catholicism is completely transformed mm -hmm. by 1848. And there's an interesting story there, which is that on the one hand, um, when, when Pius IX, who, who has to flee Rome uh, in November because the, the situation, the, the radicals have taken over and it's become dangerous for him to remain, there's a lot of shooting in the streets and his, his, his sort of buddy um, uh, and, and chief political advisor has been assassinated in the streets. Um, so he flees the city and goes down to down into the Kingdom of Naples, which is once again in the grip of a counter-revolution. Uh, and he returns and, you know, after that period of exile and enacts the, you know, a very counter-revolutionary, reactionary, one could say, um, politics in, in, the, in the city and in his papal states. And one consequence of the backwardness of the and the failure to learn any lessons about that is that the papal states yeah. disappear from history. I mean, they are wiped out when it, Italy, um, the Italian kingdom is created and the, and the papal states are absorbed or annexed, you know, conquered and absorbed in, in two phases into the, the new Italian kingdom. But what survives that is the papal curia, the papacy as the, as the sort of management agency for a world religion. And there, I think, you know, the, the Pope emerges as a completely transformed figure. Mm. And these are the two sides of Pius IX. On the one hand, reactionary and very unimaginative in the management of his secular possessions, and as a result, he loses them. Mm. But on the other hand, um, really quite media savvy and slick and, um, you know, um, tactically astute in his handling of the relationship between the papacy and the Catholic population worldwide, and particularly in Europe. So he emerges, he becomes, for example, the first pope ever to, to publish an edition of his speeches. Mm. He gives constant, spe he gives speeches constantly to visitors, pilgrims, assemblies, whatever. Um, most of them are improvised. Uh, they're highly effective. Um, he's the first pope ever to have been photographed smiling. So he's a kind of, you know, he's, he's, he, uh, he is an antecedent of these kind of, um, of the figure that today we would call a world spiritual leader. That, that, that role is invented um, for the church after 1848 and comes out of the experience of the revolution. Yeah. Well, let, let's try to turn here to the lessons that we can draw from, from 1848. And, you know, one of the, one of the ironies of uh, 1848 is that, you know, posterity has infused uh, the revolutions of, of 1848 with meaning. But at the time, uh, the revolutions were rather short-lived. They were ephemeral. Um, and the hopes of that spring were demolished by the opponents, the counter-revolutionaries, who sort of wrestled back the momentum away from, from the revolutionaries. So in a nutshell, um, what are some of the big political lessons that we can draw from 1848 that remain relevant to this day? Or in other words, was 1848 all for nuts, uh, Professor Clark and then turning to Professor Sperber? 
Yeah, no, I don't think 1848 was all for naught, but the question is really a good one because I remember when I was uh, first encountered 1848 at school, I absolutely hated this subject because the teacher, uh, I remember the teacher explaining to us that, you know, this is in Sydney, um, Australia, explaining to us, you know, guys, the it was a boys' school, he said, guys, these revolutions are very, very complicated and they were a failure. And I remember thinking that's a very unattractive combination. I mean, you know, complexity and success, yes, I can work with that. A failure, but also easy to master. Yep, you could do that. But, you know, a failure and complicated, very unattractive, especially when you're sort of 15 years old with a lot of other things to think about. Mm-hmm. But the point is that, you know, they were not for naught. And, they, and the idea that they were a failure, I think, falls radically short. Of course, they were a disaster for some of the people who took part in them and had profound disappointment and they brought death and exile and long periods of imprisonment for many of the most important important activists, especially on the left, and so on. But they also brought opportunities for others, including more moderate figures who who crossed the floor, as it were, and entered into the structures of the state and became significant figures in the post-revolutionary regimes. Um, and they made many other kinds of differences as well. So one point has already been mentioned by Jonathan. You, you have a lot of mm. new constitutions in 1848. There's a phenomenal bulk spawning of constitutions across Europe in this year. It's, a, it, it's probably the record for the greatest number of new constitutions hatched at any one moment uh, in European history. It rivals you know, the Napoleonic constitutions, where Napoleon was also a great one for sort of frisbeeing constitutions out across the continent. But, um, but it, it doesn't really compare with 1848, where almost everybody got one. And if you didn't get a new one, then you already had one. You, a lot of states like, for example, Belgium, Belgium didn't have to ch- it made some small changes, but the Netherlands got itself a new constitution. Mm. The, um, the Piedmontese, the state of Piedmont in the north of Italy got its first constitution ever, the Statuto Albertino. Even the Prussians got a constitution, admittedly not one that was drawn up by a popular assembly, but one which, that was you know, gifted or imposed, octoyiert was the German expression, by the crown. So, uh, and you might think, well, constitutions, you know, is that really so important? Well, it is important because these constitutions, you know, set out the, the rules for running elections, for convening parliaments. And once you had public parliaments, you had a public uh, a public sphere around the political life of the country. You had some form of co-determination. You had debates on matters of state, um, which had to be recorded. That was often also stipulated by the constitutions. They had to be recorded in some kind of printed, you know, published format. Uh, and so, in other words, it's a completely new point of departure in many countries in Europe uh, as a result of 1848. And I think there's an, another point I'd make, and that is that out of 1840, many contemporaries read 1848 as a kind of failure of the, specifically of the politics of ideological confrontation. Mm. And they thought, look, there are these great, you know, beautiful, but ultimately, and sonorous, but ultimately empty ideas, like, you know, liberty. I mean, I'm not saying that I think these ideas are empty, but that's what they, they were saying. You know, liberty, um, the freedom of this, the freedom of that, rights, and all this kind of thing. Rather than fighting over these rather empty words, why don't we try and leave? And there's a there's a Portuguese statesman called Fonte Pereira de Melo who puts this very well. He says, we want to leave behind the, the, the era of rhetoric and shooting mm. and pass instead into, he, he said, we want instead 
said, Uma Nova Politica, a new politics, mm. which is going to be about intelligent management mm. of society, the, uh, the quantification of problems, the reconciliation of needs. Um, and so you get this move after 1848 in Europe uh, towards a more centrist, more pragmatic, you could call it more technocratic form of government. It's all about, you know, gas works and water works and, and uh, better connectivity, telegraphic networks, better harbour facilities, the harmonization of commercial law across the continent, um, all this kind of thing. So I think these are really very deep legacies. And in a way, we're st in, in some respects, we're still living in that technocratic world, which in Europe, at least, is the legacy of the revolutions of 1848. Yeah. And, and precisely on this, on this question of the sort of the ideological um, um, uh, let's call them uh, implications from from 1848. In your in your um, uh, long article in the London Review of Books, Professor Clark from 2019, you argue that you know there were there were various ideologies that rose to fill the void um, uh, that that was left by the failures of, of, of 1848. Socialism was one, but also sanctimonious scientific technocracy and the sort of desire to have um, the, the administration have control over the fate of the nation and not leave it up to, to the turmoil of political left and right. So um, the question here is, to what extent did the European Union, and it's, uh, which it also sort of claims to, um, you know, to administer uh, the European continent in a very technocratic way, to what extent does, does the EU inherit from this post-1848 uh, thinking? I think to a very great extent. I mean, uh, the, it's, it's a fascinating story, the story of what happens to socialism. And actually, um, I, I don't want to speak for Jonathan, but what, what is, for me, one of the most interesting arguments in his book, The European Revolutions, is an argument about how socialism, not I don't mean Marxian socialism, that's just one strand of socialism, but the practice of socialist politics is renewed and transformed by 1848, because what you see emerging in 1849 is something much more like social democracy very deeply networked composite in its in its demands able to 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 appeal to quite a broad range of social constituencies not just to sort of starved proletarians but also to professional people progressives um, from various different um, you know locations in the economy so um, that that's definitely part of the story and and, and another example would be saint simonianism which is a sort of prescribed um, rather wacky form of socialism on the on the sort of left fringes of of French political life in the 1820s and 30s, <clears throat> excuse me, but becomes after 1848 quasi-governmental. I mean, it's absorbed into this, this technocratic philosophy of government. And as for the EU today, I think the EU is um, an heir to this move towards technocratic government. We should always remember when we attack technocracy, and I know everybody loves doing that, um, and, we t and we attack expertise. And let's remember that in the UK a few years ago, one of our leading politicians who's still in the cabinet remarked that this country had, has had enough of experts. Well, um, in the EU, I think what... So I'll start again. Can I start that, that last point again? Or do you, are you worried about the time? Are you worried about the time? Unless you're worried about the time. Okay, good. No, no, I'm not at all. I, I swear, didn't want to go on if you wanted me to stop. Um, okay, right. So I'll just say that um, that 
um, yes, I think the EU is uh, the inheritor of this kind of technocratic vision. And we should always remember when we attack technocracy, and I know it's fun to attack technocrats as undemocratic and, and elitist and so on. And in some ways, I suppose they are at least the second, if not the first. But I think what's valuable, what contemporaries thought was valuable about this technocratic turn was that it was a turn away from uh, politics based on conflict. Mm. And they thought, you know, wh why exhaust the energies of politics in frontal confrontation? between people who are never in the end ever going to agree and who are in the grip of great ideological slogans mm. why not move instead to a sort of you know expert led mm. um, you know clever management mm. of, of society um, so there are there are pluses and minuses to this inheritance but it's, it, it is um, absolutely one of the inheritances mm. of 1848. Mm. And Professor Sperber, do you do you see the um, the, the legacy of 1848 and the way the EU operates these days? Is the EU attributary to this very scientific form of uh, understanding no, government? I have a somewhat different take on the legacies of 1848, I think, than Chris does. Um, I, first, I, don't know, I, I agree with, I agree with him about this business about, about constitutions and constitutional government and legislature becoming a focus of public life as a important consequence of 1848. Another one that should be mentioned um, is the abolition of the old regime society of orders, in particular the abolition of serfdom across Central mm. Europe, um, serfdom and seigneurialism. Um, these both have the effect, I think, of driving a wedge between the Tsar's empire and the rest of the continent. The Tsar's empire mm. goes its own way, and in fact never has a constitution, um, even after the revolution of 1905. It's very late in ending serfdom and elements of it persist. So this creates a, a, something we actually thought we see at the moment, a very different sort of political universe in Russia and in the rest of the European continent. Mm. Um, the other yeah. thing I'd say about 1848 is that a lot of, is over the following quarter century, a lot of the ideals that were articulated then um, are in fact realized. 1848 has an agenda setting function. People return yes. to a lot of these issues. Um, the Italian and German nation states are finally created, and the Germans and the Italians are all national, become you know part of one, uh, one kingdom or empire after 1871. France does become a republic. Um, Hungary does become sort of independent of the Austrians. So all these things that were proposed in 1848 finally happen, albeit in very different ways. Um, I was actually interviewed once in uh, the time of the Arab Spring. Someone asked me about these comparisons with 1848, and I said, I really hope it won't take the Arabs uh, 25 years to realize that. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think it will take them 25 years to realize those ideals, mm -hmm. oh, which is really awful. Um, and and so for, in, in all those respects, um, I think uh, there's differences. There's one more thing I wanted to say about um, early versions of 1848, and unlike Chris, I didn't get to it until I got to the university and get it in school, uh, but I was also told it was complicated and a failure. And I think this, this relates to the comparison of 1848 with 1789 and 1917, when it seems like there are permanent changes in government, uh, new social order, and all these things don't happen in 1848. After a few years, the previous ruling groups return to power. Um, but then there's 1989, the most recent wave of revolutions in Europe, and it turns out that the changes of 1917 um, um, were reversed. And it turns out maybe the success yeah. of that revolution was not a terribly good thing for large parts of Europe. And this led us to think a little bit differently about 1848, about the ideals and the aspirations. 
that were expressed then, and not just to judge a revolution on the fairly narrow criterion of did it succeed in um, permanently overthrowing the political system. Um, so, so, so mm. yeah, that would be how I would look at 1848. Yeah, sure. C- could I come in on that and say that? Yeah, that it's um, that's a v- that two very very interesting points there. And the fir- in in replying to them, I would say that one key difference between uh, 1848 on the one hand and 1789 and 1917 on the other is that the French Revolution gets entangled with one of the most massive wars that the modern world has ever seen, and of course 1917 too happens in the heart of a tremendous conflagration, which puts immense pressure on all the, the all the political structures involved. But 1848 breaks out in peacetime. I mean there are wars and they're they're very violent as as Jonathan said earlier but they are effectively policing actions to shut the revolutions down they're on a quite different scale this is a revolution whose ideas have to make their way around the world in civilian clothes Mm. it's quite different from the from the sort of armies on the march that you have in in 1917 and in 17 in the 1790s and the other point is just to echo what Jonathan said about agenda setting and I think this applies also to women's rights the women don't achieve very much in 1848 but they do achieve achieve a great deal. They found newspapers, they found associations and clubs, they get pushed back out of political life by the post-revolutionary legislation, but they don't stay out of political life. And a lot of women who become active in 1848 re-emerge as key feminist figures in the 1870s and 80s and go on to sort of shape the movement after that. And one last point, which we haven't touched on, and that is that in 1848, in February 1848, Um, actually, sorry, in March 1848, the French Republic abolishes slavery in the French Empire. That is a very fundamental change. I mean, of course, abolition is not the same as emancipation, and it takes, in many cases, generations for the formerly enslaved people, for example, of the Sugar Islands of the Caribbean, Guadeloupe, um, Martinique, and so on, to, to really become equal citizens. But it's a it's a very important start, and it does have an agenda setting function in that in that domain um, as well. Uh, it's a bit of an aside. I was thinking of this when um, Jonathan, you were speaking of the. Um, Arab Spring. We had Gilles Kepel, one of the leading experts of the Arab world, uh, on the podcast early, uh, early on. And um, he was telling us how early in the revolution, he was talking with a lot of Egyptian dignitaries, a lot of them being kind of in the, in the army. And um, it was back when you had the massive strikes in the Tahir Square. It, it, it felt like the, the wind of history was blowing towards the democratization um, ben Ali was going to leave, and sorry, not Ben Ali. Um, what's his name? The Egyptian uh, dictator Mubarak was going to leave. Mubarak. Um, and one of the officers tells Kapel, "What's going to happen is very clear. The Islamists are going to take power in two months. Within eight months, they will lose all credibility. Within twelve months, we will be back in power." <laughs> Um, and, um, and Professor Kippel told us, uh, I didn't believe him. I thought he was in an old fart who clearly lost contact with reality. And I was a bit uh, shell-shocked when I realized it happened exactly to the week, pretty much, uh, the way he predicted it. So sometimes with a word of caution when the events seem to be pushing in one direction. But let's go back to our conversation. It's kind of a, a closing, um, closing remark here and there. But we talked about the, the success of 1848, the failures of 1848. Um, but on the legacy of 1848, we can't ignore the kind of the history of 1848. How has 1848 been remembered? We talked a little bit about the way it was remembered in different countries as a failure and so on. But 
first of all, can you kind of walk us through the way it, it is remembered in different countries, if there's any kind of stark differences between maybe East and West Europe and North and South? Um, but also, why is 1848 never talked about in the European context? Um, I'm quite struck, for example, that there hasn't been any kind of mythology or any kind of figures around 1848 in the narrative on the EU. It seems like the EU has mm. no idea that it had this kind of revolution it could tap into because it's one say it's one thing to say we believe in in dom democracy and human rights, but I think it's even stronger to be able to point to specific moments where those ideals were represented, were incarnated by by figures who who rose up uh, all across the continent pretty much simultaneously, um, starting with Chris and then back Jonathan. I think the fundamental reason for this is that the that's that is to say for the, you're absolutely right that the EU has not tapped into this and that there is no European memory or still a, a scarcely um, developed one very very vestigial one despite the uh, the, effort, the excellent efforts of Jonathan and of other historians who have written the few books that there are on which connect the re European revolutions up it doesn't really have a place yeah. in public memory. Um, in Europe, and that is a very mysterious thing. But I think it, the answer is because of the power of the nation state. The nation state has colonized and it, it, it sucked the 1848 revolutions into a range of different path dependencies, mm. nation state narratives. Sometimes that narrative was about failure. Um, in Germany, for example, there was this very powerful historical, historiographical paradigm called this, the special path, mm. the Zonderweg, which uh, argued for a sort of point of departure in 1848 with the failure of the revolution. Revolution fails. The the bourgeoisie fails to carry out its its great historical mission. Result: Nazis take over in, 18, in 1933. I mean, it's not very good history, but it's a it's a hypothesis, a way of thinking about uh, about Germany's narrative. The Italians did something very similar. It's not just a German issue. The Italians said, "Well, we the, the 1848 revolution is far too uh, leads to, to very authoritarian um, state forms, and in in the longer term, paves the way to the for the march of, on Rome in 1922." So you get those kinds of arguments. And in France, there's this notion that 1848 is the next iteration of the of 1830, Les Trois Glorieuses, the Three Glorious Days, and 1789, and it paves the way for it opens the way to, to the Second Empire, which is a kind of rehearsal for Gaulism, and and so on. And wherever you look, you find that the nation states have found ways of telling the story of 1848 as if it only happened in one country. Mm. So that I think is the main uh, the main reason why the why, why the European memory of 1848 is so underdeveloped. Which and I but I agree. And think this is a very regrettable thing. Uh, one last thought: there are some places where 1840 is still very much alive and well. Mm. Uh, Viktor Orban mm. rarely misses an opportunity to invoke the memory of Koshut, of Lajos Koshut, uh, and he does so in, 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 the, in the through the frame of a very distorted nationalist mm. view of the past. Um, so there are there are local 1848s which are still very lively in the southwest of Germany. There are still, you know, twinkly-eyed leftist um, sort of guitarists singing songs about Hecker and the, the, the South German revolutionary and, and or the death of Robert Bloom. You know, people like Wolf Biermann and so on. So there is there are local you know memory cultures around 1848. But on the European scale, you're absolutely right. There's there's so little. Yeah, it's really thinking, quite staggering. You can make a fantastic. TV show, kind of a grand TV show with different characters across Vienna, Berlin, Paris. It would be something spectacular, but nothing, nothing like that. Um, it... 
Well, Jonathan and I are available for negotiations. I'll give you the email of my agent and you can discuss this. We will find you producers. Um, on, on, a, on a slightly more serious note, I think we go back to the one of the paradoxes we explored, which is you get a European movement which ends up creating a nation state which ends up circumscribing 1848 to national events. Um, Professor Sperber on this, and maybe also I think you talk a little bit about this in, in your book, about how differently 1848 is remembered across different uh, regions of Europe. I think you say a lot about how kind of Eastern Europe has a very different relationship to uh, 1848 than, yeah, than uh, Western Europe. Yeah, I, I would say that um, in the 20th century, there are really two big periods of commemoration on the, the uh, centenary and the sesquicentenary in 1948 and then again in 1998. Um, 1948, uh, rather overshadowed by the nascent Cold hmm. War. It's sort of difficult to get things going then. 1998 is rather interesting uh, because there is there are, there are events throughout Europe. Um, there are conferences mm. and collections of essays and there are public lectures and da-da-da-da. And, you know, in some places, there's a lot more there. Uh, comic books and um, open-air theater. And actually, in, in Germany, there were even... There were even websites, which I have to say, in, in Germany, Central Europe in 1998 was an extremely avant-garde, advanced, and a little scary scientific thing. <laughs> um, uh, but when we look more carefully, particularly in 1998, we find a lot of the commemorations are centered around countries um, for whom this was an important step towards national unification, uh, particularly in Germany, where it's very mm. also in Italy, um, rather, certainly not a lot in France, and um, rather more ambivalent um, in a good deal of um, Eastern European countries. Um, and so I think you're right about the way the national narrative um, just dominates our, um, our take on 1848. Um, just speaking as a, in putting on my scholar's hat, um, I would say that the chief way that historians have pushed back against the national narrative um, is by... Um, Seeing 1848 from below, as we like to say, as a popular mass mm. movement, um, as a product of social conflict. Um, and when we do it like that, we can see that a lot of these conflicts, whether it's over things like um, the right to use the forest without government intervention, um, or uh, the right of craftsmen to stick it to large merchants who are trying to dominate their lives. Um, Mm. Those actually play out on a trans-European scale, um, and um, it's I think that the idea of, of new thinking about the revolutions of 1848 goes back to the efforts of social historians, and perhaps more than anyone else, the dean of uh, France's historians of 1848, the late Maurice Agoulon, mm. um, who is an inspiration mm. to all of us who study 1848, mm. regardless of what country uh, the events we study it in. Um, so I, I, I would, I, that's just putting on my scholar's hat. This, this take on 1848 has not, I'm sorry to say, reached the general public to a great extent, even in the large commemorations, uh, which tend to be focused. And could I just... Constituent assemblies. That's... Movements. I think that point... The, sorry, that point that Jonathan makes with his scholar's hat on is really important. That, that um, because it, it, first of all, when you look at those movements from below, nationalism doesn't actually loom very large mm. in many of these movements. And firstly, and secondly, the other way in which people have pushed back against this is, is to show that there are a lot of Europeans who aren't very interested in what nation they belong to. 
Um, this is the phenomenon of the nationally indifferent or people who don't really want to have to take sides in the struggle between nations or aren't very interested in that category. They have other categories, religion, region, interest, and so on. So um, it's important, I think, not to not to forget that because that also explains why these national you know, state formation schemes that come into that go into action in the 1850s and 60s with, with the formation of the Kingdom of Italy and of Germany and so on, they can only be achieved because elites get together with nationalist minorities and force these solutions on everybody else. That's a, um, a good place to conclude. I, I, on, on this topic, I really recommend our listeners go and listen to, I think it's episode 37, with um, Pierre Manon and Luc van Midelaar on what links Europeans t- together and what ties Europeans together. Because we did have this conversation on European history and this feeling that the EU understands its history as beginning in 1945, I suspect is also part of a conversation around why 1848 is never included in the larger narrative. It's a feeling that we need to start afresh mm, after mm. The, the, the wars of nationalism uh, in the earliest early 20th century. Um, thank you so much for both of you for a fascinating conversation. It really went by a flash. I felt like we started five minutes ago. Um, there's so many more t- topics we could have covered. A bit like in 1848, we did not deal with a social question, unfortunately. Um, so maybe for another episode in the future. But thank you so much to both of you. And to all, all our listeners, I say to you, see you next week. So, Jorge, uh, we just had a wonderful conversation with Professor Clark and Professor Sperber. I think this is probably one of the most fun recordings we've had since we've launched this podcast, I think. Um, we've had some very good ones, but there was so much spontaneous energy in this one. Um, I don't know, I just... Uh, it's also a bit of a dream come true because I remember reading some of um, Professor Clark's book in, in, in high school and college. The Sleepwalkers is it's fantastic. And, uh, and, and to prepare this episode, I binged mm. Professor Sper- Sperber's book on 1848, which is just really a tour de force, as we say in French. Mm. Um, what did you think mm. of this uh, entire conversation? What did you p- pick from it? Well, so one of the, one of the things that, that kind of uh, recurrently came to mind over um, the whole length of this episode was you know, 1848 was kind of the moment in time when liberty and nationalism met. I mean, in, in 1789, you had already gotten the sort of the thrust of enlightenment philosophy, the, the idea that men are all created equal, the idea that uh, that they're endowed by their creator with rights, um, that, you know, that those rights are, you know, life, um, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, I guess, was was what I'm, what I'm trying to get to uh, on a European, in the European context. But I think, 1848 is the moment when European nations realized that the right, um, uh, that the the right, um, the right scale. Echelle, that the the right scale at which to implement the ideals of liberty is the nation. Nationalism and liberty right. meet in 1848, and and um, you know for 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 a philosophy class that I took last year, this is what I what I was trying to get to with this idea of nationalism. Uh, for for a philosophy class that I took last year, I had to comment. I had to sort of analyze a text by a German political philosopher from uh, just a, just about this period. Uh, his name was Francis Lieber. He had fled from Prussia. He had settled in the United States, and he ended up being a close advisor to uh, Abraham Lincoln as uh, Lincoln um, fought the Civil War on the side of the Union. But the title of this text that I had to come in was very, very interesting. 
it spoke of internationalism as the alliance of nationalists. So, you know, these days we have a totally different connotation. Whenever we hear internationalism, we think globalism. We think like, you know, that's kind of someone who's trying to impose a single ideology onto the entire uh, scope of, of the earth. Um, whereas in reality, in the, in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, uh, nationalism meant the idea that uh, the world could be governed by independent nation states co- yep. collaborating with one another. So, w- w- you know, I-, I think, you know, these days we tend to associate nationalism with war because obviously the 20th century saw, you know, two world wars that were very much kind of, um, and, you know, that were that had mm. just a whole lot to do with nationalism. But in the 19th century, that correlation does not apply. Nationalism is far more correlated mm. with peace because it was only through na- the nation state that the European continent could be governed mm. uh, in the wake of obviously the Napoleonic Wars and, and whatnot. So I, I think I think 1848 is the 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 meeting point, uh, the intersection of liberty and nationalism. That, that was just we, a, we had Pierre Manon on that. the podcast last last summer. And I remember as an, probably 18 or 19 reading one of his books on the concept of nationalism and the idea that you do not see democracies outside of a national scale is really one that yep. struck me back yep. then. Um, especially, you know, because in the mm-hmm. context where we are inherently suspicious of nationalism for historical reasons, this one really struck me because there is no yep. democracy in empires or in kind of larger entities where there's no sense of common destiny. I think that's really a concept that struck exactly. me. Exactly. And we we had this conversation early on before before we started recording with Professor Clark, who came in the, the, the lobby, so to speak, a bit earlier. And we were talking about how we kind of, does man make history? Or is man transported by the winds of history over which he has no control? And... Yeah. It's very interesting to see how some characters manage to harness the winds of history, sometimes against themselves, to go in seemingly a different direction than what was expected. And Professor Clark was pointing out that 1848 is a bit of a coming of age for two different characters. One is obviously Karl Marx, who had a first-hand experience of 1848, which wasn't a very positive one. He was quite... Uh, disappointed by what came out of it. Another one, uh, fellow German, was obviously Bismarck. And Bismarck, 1848 is really the moment Bismarck took this kind of stage within Germany and later within Europe. And I think the vision of history of Bismarck is really interesting because he believed there were such things as kind of winds of history, that the wind would be blowing one way or another. Mm. In 1848, the wind all across Germany was blowing towards a liberal form of nationalism uh, that would unify Germany, mm. have a constitution. Um, you know, there was a, a parliament of, uh, it was called the Parliament of Professors um, who were trying to create this kind of uh, civic Germany, um, but also kind of ethnic as well. Both dimensions were, were existing at the same point. And what Bismarck did is he harnessed his energy against the kind of liberal energy of 1848 because he does end up being the unificator of Germany with, with um, the, the, the Prussian king. But it's not a liberal Germany. It's not so. It's a very reactionary and conservative Germany. But he manages to harness the energy. It's like, think of think of Bismarck as, as a captain of a ship. He, he can't change the wind. The wind will be blowing southeast or northwest or whatever. However, what he can do if he's a skilled captain is be able to go in whatever direction, you know, 
using your 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 the wind in such a way that you're able to go against the wind. Um, um, my my mm. my naval um, comparison is limited by my lack of um, naval vocabulary here, but um, I think it's a very interesting understanding of 1848. Yes, there is a wind of history, but it does not always blow in the way it seems to be blowing. The same way that the Arab Spring seemed to be pushing towards more liberalism, and in the end, it ended up being in many countries an opportunity for Islamists or or the military to come back to power. Um, yeah, it's a it's a yeah. fascinating conversation. I think some people like Napoleon are capable of harnessing the winds of energy, but it's not it's not few people are able to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think well, the, the so the other um, the other thought that was uh, sparked by some of the comments by Professor Sperber that I wanted to share with with our audience is you know I was pretty I so I. Uh, I was pretty surprised, first of all, when, as we were in, yeah. the, the, um, in the green room uh, before we started recording the episode and t- talking with um, Professor Clark, I was really uh, surprised to hear that in Spain, contrary, contrary to my knowledge, I, th- there actually was a version of 1848, um, uh, even though at the time and for, for a few decades around that date, uh, Spain was governed by a very liberal queen, mm-hmm. Isabel II. And so I, I was totally oblivious to the fact that there had been a uh, both liberal and nationalist revolution at the time that was apparently crushed by a liberal general in Narvaez. And so that's, that just really pointed me towards, um, it just really kind of it dawned on me that I, I, I need to, um, to do a lot more reading on Spanish history, but the other the other comment I, I wanted to share is that um, I think the audience may may have remembered the episode we did on Hungary. I got to spend a, a little bit of time in Hungary over over the summer, and I think our, our audience also um, uh, remembers that. But I, I when I was in Hungary, I was re- very struck by the following. Um, I could I I was getting two very contradictory accounts of 1848 because on one hand, 1848 in Hungary with the revolution of uh, uh, Lajos Kossuth. Kossuth, um, on one hand, that is sort of very, that is a very, it's, it's a watershed moment for the Hungarian nation. It's the, the moment when Hungarians stand up and tell the Habsburg, their Habsburg rulers out in Vienna that they want autonomy and that they want to be a nation unto itself. But at the same time, um, the bourgeoisie, the Hungarian bourgeoisie in Budapest, I think was very, very happy to be mm. tied to the Habsburg Empire, to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. In fact, the, uh, the Hungarian bourgeoisie kind of bragged that their their city their capital city budapest was on mm. par with vienna and paris in terms of prestige and glamour and and so there there are these very contradictory accounts i mean i think there there are there are many shades many different shades mm. of nationalism or at least of hungarian nationalism in this specific case where that we're playing out and and uh, and and we're releasing this episode just a few days after yeah. hungarians commemorate what is it like um, a century, uh, more than a century yeah. and a half. I don't know how many years, but uh, they're, they're, they were commemorating on March 19th, the anniversary of the events of 1848. I will try to score a pedan- pedantic point here, which is, I think in 1848, yeah. Buda and Pest weren't connected yet. There were still two different cities. Mm. Um, but one thing yeah. I want to add to, to close this up, is how profound the historical knowledge was back then. They all had 1789 yeah. on the back of their heads. I forget which famous Hungarian mm. revolutionary actually even started writing a history of a French Revolution. Um, uh, the Tocqueville mm. obviously wrote a, a history of French Revolution. Um, 
All across Europe, many politicians knew intimately the events of eighteen. Oh, sorry, of seventeen eighty nine, mm. as they were going through the events of eighteen forty eight. Which I, I, I cannot think of. I think perhaps the equivalent nowadays would be the nineteen thirties. I think we today, whenever something happens, we think of Munich, we think of, of Hitler, we think of the Sudetenland, we think of the partition of Poland between. I think it's the equivalent nowadays. I think we probably have a kind of poor understanding of the 1930s and people back then had of the French Revolution. But I think it's something to keep in mind. And something I want to add as well, it's quite interesting how across Europe, there's obviously a tension between the revolutionaries and the counter-revolutionaries, but there's also an interesting tension within the revolutionaries in themselves, because there's essentially two revolutions happening in the same place. At the top level, you have seemingly a revolution about uh, constitutionalism, about uh, parliamentarism, about democracy, about all these different things. But simultaneously, there's also a lot of energy going on around the economic crisis, around people being hungry. There's there's a shortage of food all across Europe in the 1840s. Situations can be quite dire. So there's kind of a political revolution going on in a more social revolution happening and what's quite interesting is mm. often when the first revolution is won they realize that people from the second revolution don't agree exactly and that's how you end up in france getting uh, the first revolution shooting on the second revolution the the king is gone long gone the second republic is established and people in the streets are going unhappy they feel the government is not doing enough of them and so they start rioting, they start taking to the streets. And in the end, it is the Republic, not the king, that ends up shooting on the protesters because they thought they were too unruly. And they were fearing that we could see the events of the French Revolution all over again, where the first revolution of 1789, yeah. the good revolution, gets overturned by the bad revolution, where the, 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 the um, sans-culotte take over and the guillotine comes back. Um, so I think that's something really mm. to keep in mind is how infused people were, were back then with history. Yeah, yeah I think absolutely. it's a good place to absolutely. conclude. Thank you so much to all of you. Um, I want to take this as an opportunity to talk about Patreon a little bit. I know we've, 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 um, we've propped a little bit. Um, I, think, I think we need to be honest. We, we, we are not providing the special content we would like to provide to our patrons yet. However, um, we have been talking to a few people and we're exploring a few ideas here and there. One of them, and I think that's an interesting concept, would be creating a Uncommon Decency book club where our patrons and mm. us every week, every two weeks or whatever, we would need to find a formula for this, would join together to discuss one book about European affairs, about European history, about the economics, whatever, you know, similar themes that we would uh, cover here. And we would talk for, uh, I don't know, half an hour, an hour, whatever. But creating this kind of book club in which there's a real value add for all of you. And um, I don't know, there's different different formats we, we, we would want to kind of play with. But I think that's an interesting one. So if you are interested, we obviously can't do a book club if there's not enough of you. Because uh, you know, we're not going to um, put the extra effort for you know, a, a small book club. But if it's like you know, a lot of interest for an idea of a book club, then I think that's definitely something we could do. Um, we all, we're reading books all the time and it's really something we would like to do with, with all of you so anyways um, something to explore we want to thank the people who are already have been supporting us over the past few weeks 
your generosity really is unmatched. We want to thank you so much because it really allows us to go the extra mile and make sure we can um, build something serious and long-lasting um, in the months to come. So if you're feeling generous, please, please, please help us. Uh, it's all very welcome and it really helps us keep improving the quality of the show, get special guests, get better equipment, um, do special events, and maybe even create a book club down the road. So if you want to join us, the patron, the link of the patron should be down below in the description. So join Uncommon Decency, be uncommonly decent. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. So just before we break for this week's episodes, uh, I, I thought we'd just uh, touch a word on the uh, election results uh, from Hungary and France. Uh, what just happened in Hungary, Francois? We did an episode on Hungary a few a few weeks ago, and we are going to publish a bonus episode next week where we will wrap up both the Hungarian results and also the upcoming French results. So stay tuned for that. What happened in Hungary is something which probably was less of a surprise for people who have been tuning in for the past two weeks, but nonetheless a surprise for those who have been tuning in for the past few months. Because um, I remember when we were preparing this episode, it was quite clear that the united opposition under Peter Makizai would be the major, the largest electoral threat Viktor Orban faced in a very long time. And in the end, it's been a wipeout. Um, he... Orban has increased its share, his share from 49% to 54%. He actually gained two seats and the opposition has lost nine seats. It's won 12% of the vote. Um, so in, in other words, um, it's actually a bit of a disaster for the opposition who really hoped this would be the election where they could finally get rid of Orban. There's obviously going to be this question of, you know, was the election really fair and, and all that stuff which we'll cover next week. But as it stands now today, it's a triumph for Orban. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, you know, there's no the special thing about this latest election result is that um, it is the, the margin, Orban's margin this time around is too large for gerrymandering to have really kind of skewed the result. I mean, one of the opposition's main arguments about uh, the fairness of the election is that Orban has been gerrymandering all of these districts that have uh, kind of um, limited uh, the, the amount of seats that the opposition can win. Mm. and plausibly win. Uh, but the problem this time is that the margin has been just so large that even yeah. without that gerrymandering, it would have been a landslide, no matter what. Yeah, so if, if you look at an electoral map, um, um, it's it's a wipeout in pretty much everywhere except the cities. Um, yeah. yeah, so I know, very, very um, dis, dis, disencouraging if you're in the opposition. Now, obviously, the other important election for, for Europe, and perhaps the, the most important election for Europe this year, is a French election. Again, we are recording this. If you're listening to this in the future, hello. Uh, we are currently uh, recording this on the 6th of April, 2022. So the elections are going to be on the 10th of April for the first round. So we do not know what's going to happen yet. But as it stands, as it stands, Macron is at 27% in the polls, roughly. Le Pen is at 22, Mélenchon is at 16, and then behind you have Zemmour and Pécresse, both roughly at 10%. Um, so I think maybe the tale of the, st the story of the election has been Le Pen is incredibly resilient. And there's some, some polls now on the potential second round, which even predict that Le Pen would be at 48.5% against Macron, which is essentially within the margin of error. This is very much a momentous moment. And I think Macron is paying the fact 
He basically hasn't campaigned. He had his first rally last week, oh, uh, three days ago. Uh, he's basically not. He basically a bit like De Gaulle in the nineteen sixties. Believe he could be re-elected without actually running a campaign. And it looks like there's a lot of resentment against Macron that is boiling up again, which would make his re-election actually much more of a closer um, story than we thought. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, perhaps I mean, there's as with any election in the um, in the few days leading up to the first round of voting, there's um, kind of media. There, there are media reports uh, that are uh, arguably going to play a role in kind of shifting yeah. the electoral tectonics. I think the latest um, uh, event that that, uh, that that may have an, an effect in the the election is the um, the death of a, a young um, a Jewish, thirty uh, year old Jewish man in uh, the outskirts, the northeastern outskirts of Paris in Saint Denis, who was apparently beaten up by by a mob. Um, uh, allegedly on on uh, uh, on, on grounds of uh, anti-Semitism, and then he, as he was trying to flee, he was hit, o- ran over by a tramway, and he died. And uh, what you're hearing in some of the mainstream media in France in uh, in the, just uh, the last couple of days is that an event of, of this uh, of this sort may kind of um, may um, may um, uh, 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 help uh, the right-wing candidates, particularly Zemmour and Le Pen. As it yeah. uh, kind of shows the shows the the dark underside of uh, migration. Yeah, and I also remember writing in an article last year the fact that Macron could be hit last minute by a potential scandal, and I was looking at kind of past scandals which had dented his popularity a lot. And uh, we'll go into more details next next week, but there's been a major scandal in France over the past few weeks. It's been over a billion euros of, of public funds that went to McKinsey for a lot of kind of Kind of bullshit projects to be nice about them, and uh, and Macron has kind of long-lasting, long deep ties with McKinsey, so there's a lot of controversy here. It's a bit of teasing for for the, for next week's episode, but I think there's there's probably a lot of that hitting him at the moment. Yeah. So, anyways, um, thank you so much, and see you all next week. See you next week.